0: Welcome to Alchemist X, Innovators Inside, the official podcast of Alchemist X, the corporate services division of the Alchemist Accelerator. Alchemist X operates corporate programs for spin ins and spin outs. Here on AXII, you'll follow host Rachel Chalmers, head of Alchemist X, as she talks to corporate innovation's highest achievers and most compelling thought leaders. These are fly-on-the-wall conversations with leading practitioners in the field. They'll share their lessons learned so that you can accelerate your development. So sit back, relax, and get ready to level up.
1: Today, I am thrilled to welcome Adam Adesky to the show as a corporate innovator who is now also a startup founder and whose startup is a graduate of the Alchemist Accelerator. Adam Modesky is the founder and CEO of Sensly, a virtual assistant platform with commercial usage across the insurance, pharmaceutical and healthcare industries. Before Sensly, he spent three years at Orange Silicon Valley, the innovation and strategy arm of France Telecom. Adam came to Orange from leading product management roles at Microsoft's Telmy Networks and Oracle. He has an MBA from the University of San Francisco and a computer science degree from Urbana champaign home of the Mosaic browser. Adam, thank you so much for taking the time with us today.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks very much for having us, Rachel.
1: Can you describe the journey through Orange, where you focused on telemedicine, to the founding of Sensely? was the culture shock of moving from an incubator to starting your own startup?
2: No, it's interesting. Um, when I worked at Orange Silicon Valley, they were kind of an outpost of the large Orange telecom group. That's based in France and has offices and you know operations in many places in the world in the Orange Innovation Lab, we primarily worked on scouting new technologies, developing prototypes, and really trying to understand the way the tech industry was moving and where it was moving and obviously being in Silicon Valley, having that ear to the ground and being able to meet with people in the industry is very important to that and so it was a it was a corporate office type of environment where we would be obviously close to innovation close to startups close to silicon valley but still there was this uh you know process based large corporate infrastructure around that we filtered stuff through based on our own understandings of how the market was was moving so Orange Silicon Valley, a great innovative place to be in, and being kind of con- very close connected, but still things needed to be uh, sort of properly parsed through. And that gave me the opportunity working there to just meet a lot of fascinating people from all parts of the industry and even all, all walks of life, if you will. I got to know startups really well, and founders, and CEOs, and investors, VCs, supporting you know staff, uh, and how these structures basically operate. And kind of going back to that culture shock question that you posed, it's very much, you know, when you're, when you're inside a big company, you're kind of under the safety umbrella where a lot of the things that make you comfortable being at work are automatically provided to you, you know, your salary, your office, where you work, your benefits, you know, your healthcare, things like that, legal support, you know, business support where you need it. And sort of when you're moving to uh, to a startup environment, becoming a founder, or just even working for a startup, that safety shelter slowly dissipates and basically you begin to sort of think, okay, like here's how the ecosystem really works. And it's up to me. And I am now responsible for making sure that all these different parts of the ecosystem to make a company function operate properly. And I have a lot of control and a lot of decisions to make about how to tune those things now didn 't need that kind of control in a in a bigger company because everything was provided for you, but now you have to start consciously thinking about all these things how are you going to handle finance how are you going to handle legal? what lawyer should you hire? How many years of experience that that does that lawyer need to have you know you need to pay your you know company taxes you need to you know establish a corporation perhaps subsidiaries in different countries so all those little things start becoming uh just so, so bubble up to the surface, and that 's that's a culture shock in itself because you know you all, all of a sudden you're in a completely different environment.
1: That's a such a great way of putting it. And it really articulates the pain and the friction so well. So there must have been something really strong pushing you out of the nest, out of the, the comforts of Orange, Silicon Valley. What was that impetus? What made it so irresistible?
2: Yeah. Um, and what was interesting for me personally is that the project that I was doing at Orange started taking off. So when I when I first came to Orange, I really wanted one of the benefits of, of working there. They gave me the freedom to think on my own and create and build prototypes like based on what I thought was a good idea or a good business case. Uh, In this particular case, uh, when I started working at Orange, I I was thinking a lot about healthcare. And the reason I was thinking a lot about healthcare is that You know, I worked in an environment at at Oracle, at Microsoft, where I was building these voice applications for large companies. So these customer service lines that you call that kind of automatically talk to you, these type of customer service engagement processes, if you will, started taking off in other industries really fast, you know, like travel, transportation, uh, financial services, hospitality, et cetera. But healthcare was always quite quite a bit behind. I couldn't understand why at that point in time. And so that's where I started. That was the big kind of question for me, the problem for me that kind of formed, formed at Orange where I started pursuing this this goal. What I built there with, with my team was basically a prototype of a new type of digital assistant that was able, that you can interact with, that was healthcare focused. Je, uh, both advancements as, as in, t- in technology, we, we moved from vo- being completely voice-based to being more avatar-based, so it was a visual component into the assistant. And also focusing on healthcare and trying to solve the healthcare of tasks like booking appointments, checking somebody for their symptoms, providing wellness information. So I try to combine all those things together. And that ended up being a really interesting combination because what Orange allowed me to do is to take this prototype and promoted publicly at various conferences. So I remember a conference, uh, Health 2.0, where I presented in front of a few thousand people. And it was really cool because a bunch of tweets kind of came out saying, oh, this is the best thing I've ever seen since like Facebook for health, like uh, very cool. This is sort of like what seems like a really key demarcation line between this corporate innovation and startups at that event where you you basically took this internal corporate innovation, internal prototype that you were kind of noodling on, working on, and you got external validation. People in some, you know, community, in this case, Health 2.0, basically saw it and saw, oh, this is really cool. This, I think, is something that really fits and can actually have a life of its own. And so that, that initial inflection point is what sort of drove this. In Orange, we called it an excubation, where you have an incubation where you build something internally, but this was an excubation. This was an internal project that actually, it sounded like, this is a US audience, by the way, and Orange is a French company. We're like, okay, maybe this, this has an ability to take off in the US. And so, From that point on, we started working at Orange to basically spin this off. Uh, into a separate company.
1: How do you frame those conversations about ownership? You know, how much stake does France Telecom retain? How much do you get as the entrepreneur? What kinds of questions did you kick around at that point?
2: The business case was built on the principle of like, yes, France Telecom or Orange, you know, incubated the solution internally. They invested, you know, labor costs and other kind of talent and infrastructure to support building of this uh, initial product. And then there's the consideration of, okay, well, how do you make a startup entrepreneur successful? Trying kind to of give them you know, a good runway to make sure that they don't have too much friction or encumbrances to prevent it from scaling really fast and becoming a real business, which benefits everybody. So it was kind of a mix, like a, in many different deals like that, it's kind of a mix of cash and equity that gets exchanged, kind of like an investment almost, where Orange, in this case, is make making this initial seed investment into the market of this solution, retaining a stake, and then... Kind of seeing how it would grow. So that's that's how the consideration for that deal came about.
1: Did that have an effect on downstream fundraising? Did future investors look at that stake held by the original incubator and have questions?
2: It was a very non-issue for us, I would say. It actually helped us in many ways, where I think investors felt like they were getting something that was uh, already sort of pre-baked a little bit, that already had a co- de-risk de they already had a couple years of experience presenting this to the market with the price being reasonable, the valuations being sometimes what they are, they actually thought it was a a big benefit to have this level of uh, de-risking involved.
1: That's great to hear because oftentimes when I work with internal entrepreneurs, that's one of their big hesitations about pursuing a spin out is that it won't be judged on equal terms with startups that purely evolved outside of a corporate ecosystem. So it's nice to have some counter evidence there.
2: Yeah. And also, it's obviously there could be issues if the spin-out company wants any level of control or maybe has too high of a stake. There are some red flags that this could cause for investors, but there's also a smoother, much more benefit-aligned way to negotiate and position this for the market, for the broader market.
1: How was it for you personally? Because you'd always worked for big companies before that, and suddenly you were responsible for everything. Were there moments where you just... Wanted to go back to Orange or Oracle?
2: I mean, it's definitely a wild ride. I actually read a nice quote uh, in, in an article recently, like being an entrepreneur is like riding a lion. It's it, like you don't really know where it's going to next and you don't really know how you got on it in the first place. So you don't really like you have no idea how to get off. Uh, going back to that analogy of leaving your parents' house, right? You have not more, much more risk that you've took on in your personal life. That's first and foremost, right? Your salary isn't necessarily as guaranteed as it was before. You know, you have to worry about all different parts of the business business. that you may not be that good of a skill set for. Your level of responsibilities are just much broader and affect real things and real laws, right in that comfort blanket that you're used to. And so obviously that affects you psychologically. So there's more ups and downs, there's more extremes, and you have to consciously manage that. Entrepreneurs have to be sort of prepared for that and understand like, okay, this is a thing happening in this corporate narrative that I've created for myself or startup narrative that I've created for myself, but it's still a narrative in my head. It's not that to the level of like I'm having a heart attack or something health happened to me. It's still this machine in your head that you're you're, you're trying to tune, and so having that level of distance is also very important from understanding what you're trying to do.
1: That's a great way to put it. A lot of the work I do on the startup coaching side is burnout prevention
2: yeah, having a healthy level of distance is always important I believe.
1: When you look back on your work in innovation, what are you proudest of?
2: I think this may serve as a lesson to your audience. When I was in college, my friend and I built a car MP3 player. Now, this was a while back. This was about a time when MP3s were first being presented via computers as a way to listen to music. This first sort of innovative idea that came to my and my friend's head was like, this just format get released, people really like it. What's the next step? What do you think will happen next? What's the next kind of incremental trend that not a lot of people are thinking about yet that I think will really take off? And the idea that came like, yeah, this stuff can be in cars. Because you can have a computer now in cars and you can have a very large hard drive means you can store a ton of music. It's kind of the idea that's brought the iPod its prominence in the, in the, kind of the personal world. Our idea was more targeted towards cars because, you know, we're, we have car CDs. We all like driving cars living in the Midwest. And so we built and so that was the thing that we focused on. So we actually built a computer like a laptop that you could plug in as a first prototype. That You can plug in and your car's like cigarette adapter that would have a little keypad. Where you can have a little uh, a bit of a user interface where you can advance through songs or type in the number of the song that you wanted. And you would obviously have the integration with the car stereo. But what are the things that you can do now that not a lot of people know about and get in first? and block it for everybody else basically. And there was a set of APIs being released for computers that would be able to basically allow you to play this sound, not just via Napster or other types of pre-built applications, but building the application yourself and they would provide a bunch of drivers for you to build the navigation, build the playback, all those things like, oh, these APIs just got released. We can build our own car-focused application with a car user interface to be able to play this music. And that's the thing that we jumped on. We built it, it worked. In one car, my car, we had a little display that was semi-functional. And this was sort of the learning from the failure. It failed miserably. We, ne- we never even took it to market. It was a complete disaster. But what we learned is even if you're jumping in and you find that little unfair advantage where you can implement an API faster or you can take a f- one format, and pivot it to another in a different, you know, a different type of user interface very quickly. You still need a very strong team of things around you that know the basics. And the basics are: how are you going to mount a display in the car that is usable? How are you going to create a user, uh, a keyboard user interface that people will understand how to use? How are you going to take this very large computer and make it fit so it's it's installable, and you can distribute it? So there's this whole host of business problems that you encounter. And there's tons of solutions for these business problems already. But in order to solve this, you know, 100 different business problems or whatever it was, you needed to have funding. You need to have more people. You need to have the people, uh, people with the right experience that understood what you do. So that ability to scale up the backup support and think product soup to nuts, both in its distribution and how it's delivered and how it looks, all those things are still important, even if you have that hook that nobody else has at the moment.
1: Yeah. I don't know if you've seen the show, Halt and Catch Fire, but it captures that 80s version of that experience of you've seen NSFNet, you've seen how the future's going to pan out for the next 18 months and no one else has figured out what it means yet and how do you monetize that? It's such a fantastic experience. I love that you bring that up as what you're proudest of because I think those failures are what make us when we hug those failures close and, and, and keep those lessons that can drive us for the rest of our career. I, I have a failure like that that I cherish
2: Yeah, absolutely. and It's those very early formative experiences as well. And if you look back on those formative experience, like without those formative experience, you probably wouldn't gotten to that same place on your life journey. And if you look at like where you are now versus where that formative experience actually came that that's the piece that comes to mind.
1: Yeah, and, and it's one of the real gifts of getting older is is that when something bad happens, you know there are lessons here that are absolutely golden. So, so, you become sort of zen about, oh, well, that failed. Okay, let's package up everything we learned and take it to the next thing. Which is a great lead into the next question. If you had one do-over, what would you do differently?
2: That's a great question, right? Because you have these, like we talked about, this bag of formative experiences and failures and, and life life lessons that you bring in into your world. And eventually, in my case, it ends up where I end up being an entrepreneur. I guess an area that I would definitely want to do, do or that I think would definitely accelerate my own journey into entrepreneurship is to be able, and, and in, this, in our, my case particularly, to be able to... Um, hire the best salespeople possible early on i think a lot of entrepreneurs in the b2b space have had you know issues with this uh you know especially technologists coming into the business world coming into the enterprise sales world coming into you know understanding corporate innovation understanding how digital transformation happens in various organizations there's a very specific skill set required and this is something that we learned also in alchemist and alchemist definitely actually accelerated That part of our thinking, I actually wish it would doubled or tripled it. But this is the piece that one of the most important pieces, like how do you actually sell large deals to the enterprise? And there are people that are just so amazing at it, but there's also a wide pool of people that are not. It's very similar to engineering as well, where you have just a few people that are considered like 10, 100x, like engineers that can figure out everything and do things very quickly. It's sort of finding that needle in the haystack. And that's the part that like when I came in, it was more like, how do we make this product succeed versus... How do we make the business succeed? And to make the business succeed, also awesome, being able to know how do we sell a customer efficiently? How do we reduce a sales cycle? How do we price effectively? How do we negotiate effectively? How do we scale hiring and scale recruitment? Those things became tremendously important. And obviously, we learned along the way and I adjusted as well. But that's the piece that I thought if I had a do over, I'd put much more like of my own time, my own emphasis much earlier on building that set of cadres, if you will, that to really uh, effectively promote and sell the product.
1: There's a really subtle timing aspect to that as well, though, because founder sales are so important at the beginning and you have to know all of the objections to your product. So how do you know when it's time to bring in those planetary scale sales folks?
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question as well, because you definitely have time between when you start and you have a product market fit and you have a channel market fit. That perhaps goes even deeper and really understand who your channel that you're selling into and how do you sell to them properly and what they're ready and not ready for. There's a lot to be developed very early on in the product in actually creating the the process or the workflow for that channel market fit. A lot of founders, and this happened to me as well, they hire people too early and actually like think in their mind, like they're going to solve this problem for you. They're going to find out who to sell to, how to sell to them, how to do lead gen, how to do all those things. And that may not be the case at all if your product is not mature enough because you you probably know about more more about your product and who the right customer is than anybody else. You just need to do your research. You need to get deeper in that level. Uh, and so you either need to focus a lot of time developing that process, that flow for doing uh, su- successful promotion and, and selling strategies and be confident in that and have a, a couple of references there already that have been able to go through that process and have succeeded. So you can take that template or that pattern and educate a new salesperson about it. Or you need to have somebody that actually will do that work for you, but that might be, not be the a salesperson. It can be a go-to-market person, a go-to-commercial operations type of person that both can do selling, but as well as really the job is figuring out, okay, how do we do the right product and channel fit so that we can we can sell quicker together? And that's a different skill set as well than a regular salesperson.
1: Yeah. I mean, what drew me to Alchemist is I love enterprise sales because enterprises are where the money are, but enterprises also take a ton of care and feeding. You need account reps. You need relationship sales and that's a black art to a lot of founders. It's, it takes a lot of learning and shout out to our amazing mentors, people like Ash Rust and Pete Giordano, who can teach that. It's a really rare and precious thing.
2: Yeah. That's one of the best experiences that we have while we're at Alchemist is actually meeting these folks and getting, learn, uh, learning from them about the jungle. I hope we used to call it.
1: So, we've talked about it a lot, but let's dig into it a little bit more. What makes innovation so difficult?
2: A few combinations. Number one, you need to have multiple disciplines come together. That's always a challenge because people, you know, different disciplines have their own sort of tracks in education, in, uh, in, you know, career and commercial experience. And you need to figure out how to c- combine those tracks together. You need to find the right people to combine those uh, those tracks together. Because really innovation happens at the edges, as we all know. It's like when two different ideas that are doing their own thing kind of collide together and form something new that is really beneficial, kind of the the whole being greater than the sum of the parts. And that figuring out that whole being greater than, than the sum of the parts equation is really difficult because there's several factors involved. You have to understand the market really well and the trends in the market. You need to understand the limitations of technology and where they can get you, where they cannot get you. You need to understand: Are the are the right? Is the right talent? Are the right people around to be able to put these things together? Can you actually build a culture from an, an, an organization, from the kind of people that are around either in industry or in academia, or a particular location like the Bay Area, which we're very lucky, obviously, to be based in the Bay Area that has a, a, a one of the most diverse set of talent anywhere in the world. Those are the things to kind of you know like in in the spe- in in, the, in a sort of that spectrum of you know you have a really cool product or a cool prototype that you intuitively believe makes a lot of sense from a market, from all the experience that you have and everything you've seen, but can you actually scale it? So it's a delivery machine And in my experience. Initially I thought, and this is kind of like, it goes through, through time and through uh, experience and learning initially, you believe the product or the technology is the most important thing, especially if you're coming from that world, like you're building something new, using these new APIs that just got released new technology format, you know, that kind of going back to the the MP3 just got released, so you build a product around that I'm the smartest person in the world. Now, I combine these two things together. Nobody else has done it. Everybody else is dumb. Here it is. Here's world, you know, bow to me and, you know, give me your money. that's just very, very much the beginning of the journey. And in my experience now, actually taking to that, taking it to the next level is by far much harder than that initial kind of technology journey. So that figuring out of building an organization to be able to deliver this at scale to large enterprises that could be sold to with, with this particular narrative and being able to reach this level of scalability, that's been the journey for us. And that, that by far has been the hardest part of innovation that, uh, that I've experienced.
1: I love that phrase of yours, a delivery machine, because I've often talked about the commonality between Amazon's two businesses being fulfillment, the fact that it's a river, it's designed to get things from one place to another. And that is really the challenge of of building an enterprise organization is all of the fit and finish around taking the product and putting it into the hands of of somebody who can use it. How would you distill your experience into, say, two or three lessons for our listeners?
2: So my first lesson would be focus, focus, focus. Especially when you're trying to you know, create a startup or create an innovation, it's really threading a needle or several needles, if you will, all in succession. And they all have a different sort of sizes of their eyes that you're threading through. And having that focus about that whole system and how it's flowing through is very, very important. The second is to have patience. This stuff takes a long time. It's not a get, uh, you know, get rich quick scheme by any means, uh, a stretch of the imagination. I think you have to be comfortable with spending several years patiently doing this and be used to a lot of rejection and a lot of disappointment. And you need to be able to psychologically accept that, knowing that the larger goal is to continue threading that needle and achieving success. And so that patience is is extremely important. And third is continuously look for the best people that help you along the vision. You're only one brain. We know that if you combine brains together, we get a much better result. But in your kind of needle that you're threading, you also have to thread the needle of finding really, really great people that are super complementary in various fields to what you do, both personally, you know, educationally, etc. And that's the that's the piece as well is just continuing that to that hunt because there's amazing people all around the world. And now that we're all working from home, you could I, I imagine there're going to be a lot more uh, remote-only startups that are going to form with some of the best people all around the world. They're just be you know closer connected, so that. I think that's the next piece that I think that happens that innovation and in, in human uh, collaboration.
1: I also think that's one of the best things about Silicon Valley, at least in my experiences, you meet all of these amazing people and you're like, I bookmark you. One day I would like to work with you in some capacity. And then something like the pandemic comes along and you can actually reach out to people and say, hey, do you want to try doing something? It's been a really fruitful time from that point of view, which is a great lead into the next question. How do you think the pandemic might affect innovation long term?
2: I think it definitely gave tailwind to a lot of trends. There's one on sort of the the work collaboration side that everybody talks about. Everybody's working from home, more people are working from home with the latest technology and tools like Zoom, right? And others, people are more and more comfortable about collaborating from home and feeling connected it's not perfect it's never going to be perfect but it's it's an option that you can be very creative with and on the healthcare side obviously we definitely want to avoid this next a uh, next pandemic as for as long as possible we were not prepared for this one in general although the vaccine got done in an uh, amazing record time so that's been a, a bit of a savior but the whole world just got a big slap on the face and everybody like wow this can actually happen in our, in our day and age it accelerates technology and technology adoptions first and foremost in our world at sensely We just saw a huge spike of people using our healthcare services rise up. So we are available on mobile apps and websites with various insurance companies and health systems all over the world. We have a virtual assistant that basically listens to patients' complaints and then navigates them to an appropriate care, whether it's, you know, emergency room or telemedicine or self care. And so we just saw an amazing spike of usage and we saw more and more customers and clients come tell us like, Hey, we want to deploy your technology. So for us, it's been a big sort of accelerator of what we do. And the reason is, is that people are at home, they're isolated. They don't want to go to the clinical facility. They don't want to go to the hospital. That's for sure. That's for certain. And so more people are understanding like, hey, I had this technology or I had this app on my phone before. I, I thought it was cool to have my doctor on call or to have a telemedicine app, but I didn't think much of it. Now it's like, oh, during the pandemic, I need to use it. And oh, by the way, it works great. Why didn't I use this before? I've transferred my bank funds online, I've done all this other stuff, but I, I haven't used the healthcare app before, but this works great. And now it's like, why would I wanna live without it? That's really the trend that we're seeing in terms of pandemic really accelerated this digital transformation in healthcare and made people realize, which was the big the big friction barrier. The technology is great, it works well, there's a lot of big support system behind it. How do we get more people to start using it? How do we How do we get a critical mass to convince the critical mass that this is actually better than before? And the pandemic was a great convincer for that that message that we were sending.
1: It's a classic example of where automation can actually compress the time you spend on the routine stuff and expand the amount of time you spend on the human stuff. My experience of telemedicine has been, you know, we get the taking the vital statistics out of the way and, and we spend more time talking to the doctor.
2: Yeah, and it's great for doctors as well because they can see more patients per day, they can get reimbursed more. We talk about having conversations at the top of their license or having clinical appointments at the top of their license where they focus on the the more complex stuff rather than just the very routine stuff.
1: The stuff that humans are good at. The the nuance and the complexity.
2: Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, in that sense the pandemic has helped healthcare quite a bit. Some VCs say it's accelerated it by five to ten years. Jury's still out, but definitely we saw the usage trend, the usage shift happened significantly. And I think that usage shift is uh, is here to stay for the most part. And I think that's happened with a lot of other industries as well. More and more people are using unique types of technologies to collaborate and communicate more than ever. You know, of course, there's, there's bad side effects to that as well you know, isolation, being on Zoom all, all, all day is no fun. So I think there's gonna be some hybrid model that takes place where you have some office work, some some work from home work, and you're mixing and matching, and you're, that level of hybrid collaboration is gonna make, as I mentioned, the world even more global, make work more global. And I think a lot of, not just small companies like Sensly are gonna benefit from this hybrid work from home model, but I think a lot of large corporations, multinationals in particular, will find ways to build these hybrid remote teams that maximizes the talent and skills focus on specifically on the projects that they're running, and they're going to make themselves much more fluid in how they operate. And, and, and I think drastically increase productivity. I would say just because of these new type of matching and work work models that can be developed. So I look forward to that as well.
1: It feels like trust was always a major obstacle in implementing true remote work. You know, companies just didn't believe people would work hard if they weren't in an office with a manager standing behind them. But we've amply demonstrated that people can work from home and be as or more productive than they were in an office environment. And I think that's helping even the largest multinationals allow that trust to their teams and and having faith that productivity will continue and improve. How do you avoid burnout?
2: That's a tough one. You definitely, there's days where you definitely feel burned out. Some days, like, how do do I get off this thing? You're on a roller coaster. You're responsible for, for taking it forward. And you're working a lot. You have a lot of people to deal with. You have a lot of you know business problems to solve and you have to see optimism in everything and having a clear sort of North Star, having a clear purpose that you're trying to achieve long-term is really important. Reminding yourself of that, of why you're doing all these things, because some days are really fun, some days are really not. Talking to other people about it, talking to other entrepreneurs, talking to your own team, talking to your family, being open. Some people I know <laughs> do a lot of podcasts. Yes. I'm not there yet, but maybe That'll, that's a nice sort of public <laughs> you know, clinical visit, if you will. But yeah, it's being open. It's understanding where you are. There's a lot of uh, into entrepreneurship of like faking it before you're making it, right? There's there's some you know there's there's some good stories. There's some really terrible stories. There's a spectrum of stories. But also like there's a psychological story that if you fake it too much, that's actually going to affect you quite personally as well. So knowing where you stand and where you're trying to be and being more clear about it. I think helps you uh, emotionally and psychologically knowing like that you're on this path, you're on this journey and, you know, the burnout feels when you're veering off path a bit when you feel like, okay, this is this is where I said it, but this is not, this is going into a different direction. And now I'm feeling this grind because there's this increasing delta between between what I wanted to achieve and what i'm actually achieving and that creates a lot of pain and, and you know grind and it's okay to replan it It's o- it's okay to constantly change course as an entrepreneur you have to be very aware of that every quarter you know i think about well i think about this stuff all the time but every quarter i try to consciously have a long-term plan that adjusts based on the new realities that we've experienced during the last quarter and constantly understanding that both you know financially product relationship or a uh, uh, customer relationships wise product Uh, architecture wise, is very important to understand, okay, like, here's where we are now, here's where we wanted to be, but maybe we're not quite there, maybe even better where we were. But here's where we should be, and having that clarity, and also communicating that clarity to the rest of your team, and people being very transparent about that clarity and having people be very, you know, sit next to you on the journey, and being very conscious of where you sit, and then being aligned with where you sit is very important to, uh, to keep moving forward.
1: We've talked a lot on the podcast about how there seems to be a big gendered component in this as well, in that female founders, for all of the challenges they face, have been socialized to make those connections with their peers and to share those stresses. Male founders often isolate themselves and are in a silo of faking it till you make it. And Those divergences, when they start to feel themselves being pushed away from their core values, are therefore much more difficult to deal with because they don't have that network of peer support to realign themselves
2: i mean without commenting on on the uh, on the topic too much i definitely feel it inside of myself there's definitely things as a, as a founder in general you want to keep inside yourself you don't want to reveal your anxieties too much to your team because you don't want them to feel the same anxieties. sometimes you want to protect them from those anxieties
1: yeah and the team is not the appropriate place to have those vulnerability sessions for sure
2: yeah for sure and i think where i've been really lucky actually i have a female founder my, mm-hmm. my co-founder dr ivana schnor who's a clinical psychologist and also a, do- a, a medical doctor but i found uh, ivana actually very early on when while well, i was still uh, at orange i presented this as i mentioned in uh presented the prototype at various conferences. And Ivana also presented her company in various companies. And her company did something very interesting because they were having psychotherapy visits with patients in VR. So inside a virtual world, you, you know, you're an avatar, the, the patient or the clinician, the patient are both avatars, and you're having this, these conversations. And people, the research that ended up coming up from there is that people were much more open and honest about revealing their anxieties. It was at the time treating patients with PTSD coming back from the Iraq war people were like would open up because they didn't feel as much that they were being judged it wasn't this kind of sensory experience where i'm looking at you as a human and i'm judging you it was kind of the avatar on the other side that's just a robot you can reveal things and that was one of the sort of the, the seeds of Sensely was using this avatar as a non-judgmental but very friendly and empathetic character that can communicate with with patients particularly with patients with high anxiety if you're feeling sick yeah. you know, you're 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 worried especially or your kids or your parents are sick making them feel at ease allowing them to disclose and emote all the things that they're feeling and thinking about so that you can provide them with a better service and a higher quality service so that was one of the seeds of our collaboration with Dr my collaboration with Dr Ivana
1: I love that I love the idea of a friendly robot as being a more welcoming presence than a human because of the implied blamelessness the, the lack of judgment and I love the importance of the co-founder sale in your story I'm always telling entrepreneurs that winning your co founder is your first major sale and it's the most critical to the whole experience.
2: I think that's one of the key inflection points in your journey as well, is finding that right partner. Because you're it's basically like a marriage almost. <laughs> if Ivano's listening she'll probably laugh, but uh <laughs> you are committing yourself to a long term relationship with somebody that you're gonna be seeing almost every day or every day and collaborating for every day. And so that that's in a very important relationship in your life that's gonna yeah. affect you in all sorts of ways.
1: A work marriage.
2: Yeah. Exactly.
1: What is the best way for our listeners to connect or follow your work?
2: Yeah, you can go to our website, which is S-E-N-S-E-L-Y.com. You can get our latest news. You can try out our our virtual assistant demo, our symptom checker, or or our wellness services. Uh, And you can see all the latest uh, information about our products and what we're up to. You can click contact us or follow us on Twitter. The handle is at sense underscore L-Y. Or we're also on LinkedIn, so you can always Google and search for our company.
1: As a qualified Google hypochondriac, I can't wait to get on there and diagnose myself with rare tropical illnesses. <laughs> there you
2: go. That's actually one of the things that we uh, we communicate as part of our sales process to deposition Google. It's not where your members need to go because they're just going to get more anxiety and feel fear. You need to point them to a credible source of clinical information. That's where Sensely comes in.
1: Sounds Great. What does the future look like for you personally?
2: I'm continuing to uh, build this company, having a lot of fun doing it now that I figured out all the enterprise sales processes. (laughs) It takes a while, traveling pretty much all over the world. Hopefully now we'll we'll start post-pandemic. I'm really committed. Again, it's about the focus, taking this company to the next level. The, The market for this is huge. The pandemic has accelerated it. Everybody in the world wants it. We have a unique differentiator that we actually have voice conversations with members and patients in 35 different languages. So we're really scaling our product outside the US, the US uh, as well as in the US, but internationally all over the world. That's been a big sort of personal passion for mine is to have is to be able to have a healthcare platform that's global in nature that lots of people benefit from, that's friendly and, and empathetic so we're continuing to build that and hopefully the company is going to continue growing the way it's been growing. It's been growing quite, quite well in the last few years, over 100% growth. Maybe one day we'll ring the bell at some sort of an IPO or uh, some other type of exit event.
1: Sounds great. So the next five years of our industry go however you want them to go. They pan out exactly as you hope. What do things look like in 2026?
2: For healthcare in particular, 2021, you're about 25% digital adoption that we've seen across the board of people using these automated healthcare services uh, in a simplified way to book appointments, to get answers to their healthcare questions, et cetera. In 2026, we'll probably see up to 90% or more digital adoption. Right now, we're seeing primary care in the healthcare space being automated, being made more scalable and global and less expensive and easier to access. In 2026, we'll see a big shift into secondary care, into hospital care, into other kinds of more complicated healthcare areas where technology and these type of user experiences can improve the health for many, particularly around chronic conditions. We'll see a big shift in the reduction of costs for chronic conditions. Right now in the US, chronic condition management consumes about 50%, and the chronic care population is about 5% of the population but it's 50% of our healthcare costs. We'll see a massive shift in that where it'll be more in line with maybe it's twice as expensive as primary care and other taking care of other people but it's not doesn't have this sort of massive outlay. We'll see that shift happen very very fast now because of this increased digital adoptions and the trust that is built uh, with these kind of
1: interfaces. It's much easier to detect those subtle patterns and correlations over a large population than a small one. It's a lot easier for a a system to identify rare illnesses and commonalities than it is for a single practitioner. And that's a great moment to end. Adam, this has been so great. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me, Rachel. It's been a pleasure. This has been
0: Alchemist X, innovators inside. If you enjoy our show, we'd be grateful if you could give us a rating or comment on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. You can find the transcript of this conversation, plus links to whatever books, articles, TV shows, and apps we talked about on alchemistaccelerator.com forward slash podcasts. If you'd like to chat more about our corporate programs for spin-ins and spin-outs, email us at innovators at alchemistaccelerator.com. We love hearing from you, so stay connected by following Alchemist X on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Facebook and LinkedIn. Until next time this has been Alchemist X innovators inside.